Isaiah 54. Let's begin with verses 1 through 3. And then we'll pray. Sing, O barren, you who have not born. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not labored with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married woman, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let them stretch out the curtains of your dwellings. Do not spare. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you shall expand to the right and to the left. And your descendants will inherit the nations. And make the desolate cities inhabited. Shall we pray? Father, help us to understand your word this evening. Through the power of your Holy Spirit. Please bless us, Lord. Anoint us, fill us to overflowing. But Lord, the great battle is in us. Help us, Lord, to receive. Help our minds and our eyes and our ears and our hearts to be open and receptive to your word tonight. And may your spirit be our teacher. May we as earthen vessels... Be faithful to rightly divide your word so that we can take what you give us and to grow in your grace and knowledge and favor. We ask these things tonight in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. There is this beautiful picture that is painted here between chapter 53, which we've taken a few weeks to study in chapter 54 of Isaiah. Because you have to understand that after you have experienced the darkness, the gloom, the suffering, and the sorrow of Calvary and the cross, what we have seen in Isaiah 53, the first word of the next chapter is sing. So that a beautiful way to see this whole picture. We've seen all the things that have taken place upon Jesus Christ on that cross for us. And the first word, after what we've read and what we've studied in, in chapter 53, especially the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, is sing. In a few weeks... We'll be celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The first thing that we do when we get to that Easter Sunday morning is sing. (laughs) But it's not that we're to wait a whole year to sing. We sing all the time. Why? Because it's already happened. It's already taken place. Jesus is risen. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. He's our God. So after all that Jesus has done for us, we sing. And and, and there can be no greater expression of gratitude and thanksgiving than that. I think of the psalmist in Psalm 27, verses 5 and 6, when he says, For in the time of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion, in the secret place of his tabernacle, he shall hide me. He shall set me high upon a rock, and now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And therefore I will offer sacrifices of joy in his tabernacle. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises (laughs) to the Lord. That's not just the heart of the psalmist, it's the heart of every person that has experienced what Christ has done on the cross of Calvary. What he has done in dying, in being buried and rising from the dead. I will, I will offer sacrifices of joy in His tabernacle. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. I've got to tell you that Christians are not to be silent. We have the privilege of resounding 
with praise the things that God has done for us. And so, with the psalmist's heart and with the pleading of the prophet, let us sing for what Christ has done for us. You know, there's also another connection of note here between these two chapters, although it is one that many fail to see clearly. And that is that chapter 54 is connected with the last chapter in verse 10, chapter 53, verse 10, and you need to look at that for just a moment. Specifically, the expression, he shall see his seed. Because it is here in chapter 54 that we see that seed which Christ would obtain by his death on the cross of Calvary. And with this idea in mind, we can say then that this entire chapter uh, can be appropriately considered a continuation and a further development of chapter 53. He shall see his seed. And the main thought of the chapter, as well as that of the second part of the whole book of Isaiah, is the reacceptance and the restoration of Israel. So when you read the first verse, sing, O barren, you who have not born, in other words, not born children, Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not labored with child, for more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married woman, says the Lord. You see, in ancient Israel, a barren woman was despised. A barren woman was disgraced and carried a tremendous load of shame and humiliation. Children, you see, were a heritage unto the, uh, of the Lord unto, unto people. It was, uh, you know, the Jewish people believed that children were, were indeed a, a blessing, but if you had no children, there was no blessing there. Children would aid in the chores, children would help in the home, children would grow to later on help their parents in their old age. That was the whole purpose of having many children, that there would be no Stoppage of, of, of the name of the line as it would go on in, in life. And so fertility was a sign of God's blessing. A woman with lots of children was considered especially blessed. Take for example when, when Hannah was, was not able to have children and she was called barren. She was devastated. But when the Lord allowed her to have a son, she sang for joy. Turn, turn if you will, first, uh, to 1 Samuel chapter 2 verse 1. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 1. And Hannah prayed. And she said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. I would encourage you, if you would, to read first chapters 1 and 2 of 1 Samuel sometime today, or tonight. It's not long. Because you'll see the whole picture of what's taking place in her life. But she, she prays and she says, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My, my horn is exalted in the Lord. In other words, my strength is exalted in the Lord. I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. And that statement of rejoicing is, is really the, the, the heart singing for joy unto the Lord. Here, a barren woman. Who else? I mean, we've seen so many in the Scriptures. Sarah was called barren. Rachel was called barren. And all of them were blessed by God. After the disgrace. After the shame. After the humiliation. There was a picture there. The same picture is found here. And to understand chapter 54 correctly. We must see that the entire presentation of Israel as a wife is based on the rich covenant relationship between Israel as a nation and God, which was established on Mount Sinai where this marriage was contracted from God's side out of pure love. So we're talking about a marriage here. You go back to Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6, where it says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, God speaking to the children of Israel, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel, the Lord speaking to Moses to tell the people. 
Later on in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 8, listen to what it says. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for Himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set His love on you or choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you and because He would keep the oath which He swore to your fathers. The Lord has brought you out of the, out with the mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And so there is that special relationship, that covenant relationship. In effect, it was a marriage relationship between God and His people. And how then did Israel respond? What was Israel, Israel's response to God's covenant made with them? They responded with shameful adultery by turning to other gods and the Lord had to abandon her temporarily. This is what we've covered in in much of the earlier part of the book of Isaiah. And in really in a lot of other particular cases. Jeremiah chapter 3 verse 8, listen to this. Then I saw that for all the causes for which backsliding Israel has committed adultery, I have put her away and given her a certificate of divorce. And yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but went and played the hard lot also. So all the children of Israel, northern kingdom, southern kingdom, Israel, Judah, all of Israel, played the hard lot. All of Israel committed adultery before God. God, who said, I chose you not because uh, you were greater in number or because there was anything special. I made you my special people. I chose you. And their response was this idolatry, was this adultery, was this abandonment of, of, of the Lord's blessing. Now, if you look at Isaiah 54 again and look at verse 7, I'm not jumping uh, except to point this out. Because what he says here is, for a mere moment, I have forsaken you. What is a mere moment with God? Huh. Now what does the Bible say? The time is with God. A day is as a thousand years, a thousand years is as a day. A mere moment for the Lord could be hundreds of years. The hundreds of years, the 400 years that, uh, you know, they, they, they went into captivity. The 70 years that they went into captivity in Babylon. The, you know, just the various numbers of years that they've spent forsaken. But only temporarily. Please understand this. For a mere moment I have forsaken you, but with great mercies I will gather you. Again, the promise of God. And by the way, when you read through chapter 54, you need to remember that this is about the promises of God to regather and to restore Israel, His people. Too much of the church today has written Israel off and said that they're no longer to be blessed by God. God has forsaken them forever. He has not. The Bible doesn't teach that He's forsaken them forever. A mere moment, He says. But with great mercies, I will gather you. So with that in mind, Israel as the wife of Jehovah, as the wife of Yahweh, was barren. As His wife, as her being married to God, she was barren and unfruitful. And for that reason, he forsook her for that mere moment. She was like a woman who had no children and therefore was in a continual state of mourning. But by God's sovereignty and by God's grace, he will enable her to have many children. And that's the point of verse 1. So from being restored to joy, they will also be restored to fruitfulness. Go back again to verse 1. But now look at the second part of verse 1, where it says, For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married woman, says the Lord. We've just, we've just talked about that. More are the children of the desolate. She's been desolate. She's been forsaken for a mere moment, for whatever that moment is for the Lord. But it says she will be, uh, more are the children, I should say, of the desolate than the children of the married woman. When she was married to the Lord and forsaking Him, she bore no fruit. No true fruit. 
And so now he says, enlarge the place of your tent. Let them stretch out the curtains of your dwellings. Do not spare. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you shall expand to the right and to the left and your descendants will inherit the nations and make the desolate cities inhabited. There is going to be that, that sense that Israel, after all of this, after, after their captivity in Babylon, they are going to grow. They are going to bear more children. They are going to be more than what they were before. When they go back into the land, when they go back into Jerusalem, there is some sense of, of that expansion. But you have, to con, you have to consider what we've learned throughout all of, chap, of uh, the uh, book of Isaiah is that there are always uh, near fulfillments and far fulfillments. And here we're seeing somewhat of a near fulfillment and looking forward to an even greater fulfillment. And we're going to talk about that in just a moment. But the nation had diminished. The nation of Israel had diminished due to the Babylonian invasion. But the Lord would help them multiply again. So Jerusalem actually increased again for a time. But at the end of this age, again, the far look, the ultimate fulfillment as it were. At the end of this age, while we know that only a believing remnant will enter into the kingdom, the Lord will enlarge the nation abundantly and will do for Israel what He did for Sarah and Abraham. You see, the tents will need to be enlarged and the desolate cities will be inhabited again. Folks, listen carefully to this. Listen carefully. Israel today is in a strip of land that is only a small part of what God promised them to have. And yet the Lord promises them to have all their land. What are they going to need to do to have that land? But they're going to need to enlarge their tents, as it were. Enlarge their borders. Stretch out the curtains, you see. Tents of that time as we look at this particular passage. Enlarging the place of your tent. The tents were made up of layers of cloth. So making a tent larger was just a a matter of opening up a wall and adding more material. So this barren woman, and and this is I think kind of a neat thing, is that this barren woman is told to start doing some home remodeling. She's still barren. But she's told, hey, you need to start doing some some remodeling here. She's told not only to make her tent bigger, but stronger. Strengthen thy stakes. Interesting. What were the stakes? The stakes were, I'm not talking about meat here. Different spelling. S-T-A-K-E-S. Those were the, 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 the pieces of wood that would hold the, you know, the ropes that held the tents in, in, firmly in place, you see. In the ground. Strengthen your stakes because you're going to get bigger and you're going to need to secure. The bigger the tent, the more secure you have to make it. So God is telling her, get ready, be building and strengthening your stakes. This is a promise of encouragement that these things are going to happen. So it's important to note at this juncture now that the Apostle Paul quoted Isaiah 54 verse 1 in Galatians chapter 4. And he applied the spiritual principle. He applied it to the church. But I want to begin reading in Galatians chapter 4, verses 22 through 27, to give you a little bit of a picture of what, what he's, he's saying to uh, the, the Jews and Gentiles that were in the churches in the region of Galatia. He says, for it is written, verse 22, it is written that Abraham had two sons. I just mentioned about, you know, what God did for Abraham and Sarah. It is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh. Who was that? That was Ishmael. Ishmael was born of the bondwoman according to the flesh. And he of the free woman through the promise being Isaac. Which things are symbolic. For these are the two covenants. The one from Mount Sinai which gives birth to bondage which is Hagar being the bondwoman. For this Hagar, listen... This Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. Why Jerusalem, which was now then? Because 
Here uh, is the reference to the law. Here's the reference to the, you know, the, the legal relationship, as it were, or to the law. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. You can read some, somewhat of that in, in Hebrews chapter 12 later. Verse 22 mentions that uh, Jerusalem from above. The Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. And again, we're seeing, we're seeing a distinction between law and grace. The way God is bringing about this new covenant and this new people. The Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren. Here it is. Isaiah 54, verse 1. Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has more, many more children than she who has a husband. So even as the Lord blessed Sarah and the Jewish remnant with children, so He would bless the church, though she is only a small group in the world. Now, please understand something about that. Please understand that the church comes out of Israel. The church comes out of Israel. It comes out of Sarah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and, 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 and is birthed out of these chosen people. So what Paul wasn't doing, let me just say what Paul wasn't doing is he wasn't equating Israel with the church or even suggesting that the Old Testament promises to the Jews are now fulfilled in the church. Because I tell you this, you know, when people say, well, you know, now the, the, the promises of God are, that were for the Israel were, were, were for the church, are for the church now, is, is to also say that, you know, we, we, like the, we like the blessing promises. We don't like the judgment promises. But you know what? If you're taking Israel's promises, you've got to take them all. So there's a flaw in that thought that, you know, Israel doesn't exist anymore, so the church now gets all the blessings, but we don't get the judgments. You see how there is a distinction in the scriptures between Israel and the church. But what Paul was referring to was the miraculous birth of those under the new covenant. And the new Jerusalem will be, when you think about it, the new Jerusalem will be more densely populated than the old. And so the children of the desolate, being Israel coming back to her God, back to her husband, back to her maker... More are the children of the desolate than the children of the married woman. When Israel was married to God and yet was, was disobedient and adulterous and idolatrous and all of that. No fruit. No fruit. But when they come back, the fruit now comes. And Paul kind of brings that link in with the church. So from being restored to joy and fruitfulness, Israel will also be restored to confidence. Confidence in God's promises. Please, let's read on verses uh, 4 through 10 now of Isaiah 54. Beginning at verse 4, let me read this whole section. Do not fear, he says. Do not fear, for you will not be ashamed. Neither be disgraced, for you will not be put to shame. For you will forget the shame of your youth and will not remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. For the Lord has called you like a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, like a youthful wife when you were refused as your God. For a mere moment I have forsaken you. But with great mercies I will gather you. With a little wrath I hid my face from you for a moment. But with everlasting kindness I will have mercy on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Can, can I stop there for just a moment and ask you a question about this particular thought? Would God not be schizophrenic if He was first talking to Israel and then He was talking to the church? If first he was talking to Israel and saying, you know, I forsook you, but now, you know, I've forsaken you completely, but now to the church, let me say that here, I want to bless you. 
You see, it doesn't make sense. You have to look at the whole context of what God is saying. He's speaking to Israel. He's speaking to His people. And He says, With a little wrath I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness I will have mercy on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. For this is like the waters of Noah to me. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah would no longer cover the earth, so have I sworn that I would not be angry with you nor rebuke you. For the mountain shall depart and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from you. Nor shall my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord, who has mercy on you. Israel is now exhorted not to be afraid and not to suffer shame. That is, not to let itself be overpowered by the disgrace that it has undergone. Compare, if you will, what had been prophesied earlier by Isaiah concerning the Lord's servant, the prophecy that was fulfilled by Jesus himself. Go back to Isaiah 50, verse 7. Go back there for just a moment. Here it says, For the Lord God will help me. Now notice, this is the servant. So, in essence, this is Messiah. And he says, For the Lord God will help me, therefore I will not be disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like flint. In other words, he has set his face with determination, and I, will, and I know that I will not be ashamed. Now, in applying that to the Lord Jesus Christ, as we did before, he was held by his Father. Not to be disgraced, even though he went through every shame, everything that he went through in his suffering, in his trials, in, in all of the, the, the beatings and everything that went on to get him to the cross. Yet he says, I know that I will not be ashamed. You know why? Because God helped him. How? In that God, his Father, the, and the Holy Spirit, and Jesus, even Jesus himself, when he died, was buried, and on the third day, they raised him from the dead. And he along, he rose from the dead. There was no shame. And so there's this, this need for Israel to understand that its Messiah has gone through this, has gone through these very same issues of disgrace and shame before them and for them. And why was there then no need to fear? As we get back to our text. Because primarily their sins were forgiven. Because their sins were forgiven. Notice what it says there. For you will forget the shame of your youth. We're still back in verse 4. For you will forget the shame of your youth and will not remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore. Why should they fear the future when God had wiped out the sins of the past? Let me ask you that question tonight. Why should we fear the future when God has wiped out the sins of the past? You know, it's amazing to me how many Christians fear what's to come. And I tell you what, I guess in, in a way, if you look at what's taking place in our world, in our country, you know, if you have opinions about, you know, the, the, the presidential race that's going on and what's happening here today, and, and we all should have some, uh, some understanding and we all should have some uh, heartfelt uh, uh, desire to see God do something great in all of this, even though it doesn't look all that good right now. But the fact of the matter is this. We don't have to fear the future if we know that our sins are forgiven right now. But maybe we better check our hearts if our fear of the future is based upon the fact that we're not sure whether we're right with God. And, and if you're not right with the Lord tonight, I'm, I'm, I want to tell you, you need to, make yourself, you need to make yourself understand that you need to get right with God tonight. You need to give your heart and your life to Jesus Christ. Because I tell you this, Jesus, and I say this time and time again, you know it. I, I, you know, maybe I get blue in the face, maybe you get blue in the face hearing me say it, but I tell you, Jesus is coming. That's the message of the gospel today. Jesus came. Jesus died on the cross. 
For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world the first time to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. But guess what? He's coming again the second time. And what's He coming to do? He is going to come to judge. And we need to be ready. We need to be ready as His people to be received. We need to be ready as His people to let God do what He needs to do in these end times. But why should we fear the future when God has wiped out our sins? Which doesn't give us license, by the way, folks, to sin whenever we feel like it. Because we're supposed to be new creatures in Christ. The old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And listen to what the Lord says in Isaiah 43, verse 25. Just in, in point of review, so that we'll realize we've already gone over this ground. He says, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. And then in chapter 44, verse 22, I have blotted out, he says, like a thick cloud, your transgressions. And like a cloud, your sins return to me. For I have redeemed you. Do you see here what's going on? He's telling them, you'll forget the shame of your youth and will not remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore. Listen, He's forgiving them. And certainly the people had sinned significantly against their God, but He forgave them. And this could only mean a new beginning. And when did that new beginning commence? Go back to Isaiah 40, verses 1 and 2. Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended. Speaking in the past tense, hasn't all yet happened yet because of the fulfillment of, of, of the prophecies and all, but it says that your, her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Israel could, not, could, could also forget the reproach of its widowhood. Because it might have been regarded as forsaken as a widow, but the Lord promised to stand in the place of her husband. Look at uh, verses 5 through 7 again. It says, For your Maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is His name, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. For the Lord has called you like a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit. Like a youthful wife when you were refused, says your God. For a mere moment I have forsaken you, but with great mercies I will gather you. You see, fruit, we were talking about their fruitfulness. Fruit comes from having a loving relationship with a loving husband. Fruit comes from having a loving relationship with a loving husband. I, and I say it in those terms because we're talking about Israel who's supposed to be Yahweh's wife, God's wife. Fruit comes from having a loving relationship. What were she called at the beginning? Barren and desolate. Unfruitful. And yet here he says, I've forsaken you, but with great mercies I will gather you. Fruit comes from having a loving relationship with a loving husband, and who can be more loving than God Himself toward the one that He has called? It, it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you've done that has brought you shame or disgrace. And maybe you need to consider this on a personal level. It doesn't matter what you've done that has brought you shame or disgrace. God wants to have a loving intimate relationship with you as a husband is to have with his wife. And let me put it in, the, in an even simpler term. He's all that you need. He is all that you need. What are the things that you feel are most important in your life? This is the time to think. What are the most important things? Or, or should I say, what are the things that you feel, that you feel are most important in, in life? You see, for some of us, 
they are things that we've already achieved. Things that we're proud of. For others, it's the things that we don't have yet. The things that we tell ourselves. If I just had this, then I'd be happy. If I just had that, oh man, I'd I'd be in heaven, as it were. I'd be joyous. I want you to think for a moment on what the Apostle Paul considered in his life. We start in Philippians 3, verse 3, where it says, For we are the circumcision, Paul says, we'll worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. And you know, if, if we stopped right there, we would say, you know, Paul, that's a great statement. You know, we're the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, we rejoice in Christ Jesus, we have no confidence in the flesh. Amen to that, right? But then he goes on in verse 4, and he says, Though I also might have confidence in the flesh. You know what he's doing? He's bringing us into this picture. where He's bringing us into his very own heart. He says, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. You want to debate about the confidence in the flesh? Hey, come and talk to me. Circumcised the eighth day. Look at this list. Look at what he believed was important. Look what he believed he had achieved in his life. He says, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. I've achieved it all. But what things were gained to me, notice what he says, verse uh, 7. What things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. You see, when you come to Jesus Christ, you have to turn everything around in your life. The perspective changes. The pursuits change. The purposes and the plans, they change. And he says, I count all of that loss for Christ. And if he had stopped there, we'd say, Paul, that's wonderful. That's what we need. He's all we need, Jesus Christ. But he doesn't stop there. He says, yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, which he did on the very day that he saw Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. And Jesus knocked him down to the ground and said, Paul, why? Or Saul, why are you kicking against the goats? He says, I count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. Count them as rubbish. Rubbish is a nice word. I count them as manure, as a pile of manure. King James Version says dung. You all know what I'm talking about. I guess I don't have to get descriptive here. I count them all as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Don't you want to be found in Jesus? Folks, I don't know of, of of a shorter phrase that has so much meaning like that phrase, to be found in Him. Not having my own righteousness, he says. Which is from the law. That's the confidence in the flesh that he had. Not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God, by faith that I may know Him. He continues to want to know Him more, and to have Him more in His heart, in His mind, that I may know Him, and the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Have you been conformed to the death of Jesus? Because that's how we're found in Him. Conformed to His death. For I have been crucified with Christ, Paul says in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. 
In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I've been crucified with Christ. Paul knew what it meant to have the fellowship of his sufferings and being conformed to his death, if by any means he said, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul had learned to take all the stuff of the past. And folks, this is something we need to learn tonight. Paul had learned to take all the stuff of the past that held him back and let go of it to know Jesus Christ. For him to say and be found in him. Folks, my prayer for you, and not just for you, but for those that come on Saturday night, and for those that come on Sunday mornings in the first service, and those who come on Sunday morning in the second service, and for the people that I know, and the people that I love, and the people that I care for, and even people I don't even know. But I have a desire to know that people will be found in Jesus Christ. That's my desire, that you are found in Christ. More importantly, that you who hear the teachings of the, of the Word of God in this place, that you will be found in Him. But I can't do more than just give you what God says. You've got to believe. And then you've got to trust. And then you've got to stand. And then you've got to act in faith in Christ. I can't do that for you. You have to do it. Have you taken all the stuff of the past that has held you back? Have you taken it and let go of it so that you may know Christ? And that you can be found in Him. Well, let's go on. We have still a lot to cover. Let's go on. Verse 7 again. Isaiah 54. Verse 7. For a mere moment, I have forsaken you. But with great mercies I will gather you. With a little wrath I hid my face from you for a moment. But with everlasting kindness I will have mercy on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. God had to show His anger at their sin. God had to show His anger at their sin, but now the chastening is over. And they were returning to their land. You know, it reminds us that God's chastening is done in love to to bring us to repentance and enable us to produce the peaceable fruit of righteousness. This is what it tells us in Hebrews chapter 12. Now, I encourage you to read Hebrews chapter 12. I think I mentioned it already. This is now the first part of Hebrews chapter 12. As a matter of fact, just read all of Hebrews 12 tonight as well. You can do that. There's still time. I know one thing, your lights don't all shut off at, you know, 10 or 11 or 12. You know, they, they stay on, don't they? So maybe you have a little light left to kind of read a little bit tonight. Or a flashlight under the covers or whatever. But read this. But look, but look at verse 11 just to shorten it all. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful nevertheless. Afterward it yields what? It yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. You see, when God corrects His children, He may hurt them. We know this, don't we? If we've experienced this chastening. When God corrects His children, He may hurt them, but He never harms them. <laughs> There's a big difference. It is always for our good. It is always for His glory. God does it because He loves us. He corrects us to make us more like Jesus Christ. He corrects us to make us more into the image of Christ. So at times it hurts, but it never harms. As the Lord kept His promise concerning the flood, so He will keep His promise to His people Israel. But with everlasting kindness, He says, I will have mercy on you. Look look at verse 9, because here's that promise about the flood. He says, for this is like the waters of Noah to me. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah would no longer cover the earth, So have I sworn that I would not be angry with you nor rebuke you. For the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed. You know, it's interesting. The mountains didn't recede when the water, you know, when the the waters of Noah's time. It was the waters that receded. Not the mountains. Not the hills. It says, for the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed. But my kindness shall not depart from you. See, waters can naturally recede. But even when mountains depart and hills be removed, He says, my kindness shall not depart. Even if those things recede, my kindness will not. Nor shall my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has mercy on you. 
So Israel can certainly depend on God's love, His covenant, and His tender mercies. And it is important to note that is, uh, I should say Isaiah was speaking not so much on the return from the Babylonian captivity as he was of the millennial kingdom, that which is to come. Since the nation has suffered God's anger many times since their return from captivity. We know that. Let me just mention the, the word holocaust. Do you understand now? They've suffered God's anger many times. So now we can see this promise that God is giving to the far fulfillment. When God does give His peace to them, it will be a lasting peace for sure. It will be a lasting peace for sure. Not too many months ago we read these scriptures during the time that we celebrated the birth of Jesus Christ, Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase, and, and this is what you need to hear, of the increase of, the, of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time Forward even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Peace, there will be no end. Government, there will be no end. His increase of that government, of that peace, there will be no end. So not only will joy, fruitfulness, and confidence be restored, not only will the captives be set free and the nation restored, but also the city of Jerusalem will be rebuilt. And so we come now to the last section of this, of this chapter, verses 11 through 17. And let's read the whole thing and then we'll break it down a little bit. O you afflicted one, tossed with tempest and not comforted. Behold, I will lay your stones with colorful gems and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of rubies, your gates of crystal, and all your walls of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. Does that give you an idea of where that is? It isn't in, in the recent past of, of Israel and Jerusalem, is it? It's something that's yet to come. So... You give, get, get an idea here. It says, In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. Indeed, they shall surely assemble, but not because of me. Whoever assembles against you, and he's speaking about those enemies of theirs, whoever assembles against you shall fall for your sake. Behold, I have created the blacksmith who blows the coals in the fire, who brings forth an instrument for his work, and I have created the spoiler to destroy. No weapon formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue which rises against you in judgment you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is from me, says the Lord. So getting back to the first part of this section in verse 11 and down through about verse 14, the wording here may, may seem to be a bit extravagant, doesn't it? But keep in mind that the prophet Isaiah sees both the near fulfillment and the far fulfillment. The immediate and the ultimate fulfillments. And so we're looking at something that is dealing with the, with the ultimate fulfillment. Because if you go to Revelation 21 and turn there and look at verses 18 through 21. We see some very similar kind of wording. The construction of its wall was of jasper. And the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third uh, chalcedony, the fourth uh, emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase. I'm, I'm glad you all are taking notes. Uh, the eleventh jacinth and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each individual gate was of one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. I think it was Pastor Tom who told me he can't wait to get to heaven with a pitch. I mean a pick, because he wants to, uh, he wants to take some of the asphalt, he says, in heaven. You know. But these are the promises of God. The, promise, the promises that God gives in the last section of Isaiah 54 reflect His ultimate care for His people, Israel. 
He cares about them being afflicted. Notice, oh, you afflicted one, tossed with tempest and not comforted. He cares about them being afflicted. He cares about them being tossed with tempest. He cares about the one who is not comforted. Those who may be afflicted, tossed, and without comfort may find it easy to believe that God doesn't care. How many people out of the Holocaust back in the, in the 30s, late 30s and, and early 40s, how many of them, the, the Jewish people that suffered through the Holocaust, they said, God has forsaken us. Or many others said, we can't believe in a God that would allow us to go through this. They find it easy to believe that God doesn't care, but I can tell you this, He does care. And He gives these promises to strengthen His people. And Peter says in 1 Peter 5, verses 6 and 7, here's the key to understanding this. We have to humble ourselves. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon Him, for He cares for you. But we have to humble ourselves. And for God's people to see that beautiful city, they must wait till the return of the Lord and the establishing of His kingdom. And then every citizen of Jerusalem will know the Lord and the city will be free from terror and it will be free from war. Look at, look at verses 13 and 14. It says, All your children shall be taught by the Lord and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear. And from terror, you be far from terror, for it shall not come near you. For it shall not come near you. The children of Israel. The children of Israel always considered the training of their children as a, as a high priority. Many wanted them to be true to the Lord and not led or guided by the pagan influences around them. But in the millennial kingdom, the children will be taught by the Lord Himself and will enjoy His peace. That would be the day when God will never rebuke Israel again. Verses 9 and 10. If you go back and look at it, just, just, just look at it. Righteousness will prevail. And those living in Jerusalem will no longer live in terror. You know, I oftentimes tell you that we, we want you to have the opportunity to go to, go to Israel. And, and in the very near future, you'll have that opportunity again. People always ask, you know, well, isn't it kind of terrifying over there? Isn't it kind of dangerous over there? My thought is, it always is. But we go trusting the Lord. And we've always been blessed by being over there. But one thing that we do see is that the people always live with the knowledge that anything can happen at any time. So can you imagine a day? And it's not hard to imagine if you believe what the Word of God says, but can you imagine a day when righteousness will prevail and those living in Jerusalem will no longer live in that kind of terror? You know, Jesus also used verse 13. All your children shall be taught by the Lord. He used verse 13 to teach that those who come to Him and believe in Him are being drawn by the Father or taught by the Lord Himself. Jesus said that this verse was being fulfilled in the, in the lives of those who were paying attention to what God was saying to them and responding by coming to Jesus. In John 6, verses 44 and 45, listen to what Jesus says. He says, No one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws Him. Now that's not God forcing you know what that is? That's God teaching. It's God giving us an understanding. It's God opening our eyes, drawing us to Christ, His Son. And Jesus says, no one comes to me or can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, 
and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Folks, that's what Jesus was saying, that in our day and time, we're still being taught by the Father. The Word of God is still coming to us. The Word of God is still opening our eyes and our hearts. And when we finally see Jesus, and we see our, our hearts and our sinful ways, and realize that this is what separates us from Him, we lay it down. He has taught us what the Word of God says about Jesus Christ and what the Word of God says about salvation. And yet in the millennial kingdom, all children shall be taught by the Lord. Isn't that a great thing? No more NEA. No more public schools. There'll be one teacher. And that teacher is God. God Himself. Isaiah 54, verses 15 through 17. Let's close now. Indeed, they shall surely assemble, but not because of me. Speaking of the enemies, they'll always assemble, won't they? But this time God says, they're not assembling because I'm, you know, raising up the Babylonians because I need to correct you. I'm not raising up the Assyrians because I need to correct you. Notice that's what he's saying. Indeed, they shall surely assemble, but not because of me. Whoever assembles against you shall fall for your sake. Behold, I have created the blacksmith who blows the coals in the fire, who brings forth an instrument for his work, and I've created the spoiler to destroy. You know what he's saying there? I'm the sovereign God. I'm the sovereign. I'm in control of all things. So he says, who brings forth an instrument? I'm sorry, uh, verse 17. No weapon, he says, no weapon formed against you shall prosper. And every tongue which rises against you in judgment you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is from me says the Lord. I've got I to gotta say this right off the bat. This particular verse, if you just keep it up there for a moment, this particular verse is so misused by a lot of preachers today. They use it because they want to tell you, listen, if you say anything bad about me, I'm going to stick this right into you. No weapon against me is formed. You know, no weapon formed against me shall prosper. So if you're doing this against me, God's going to condemn you. And they use that to kind of, you know, to protect themselves because of all of the false teachings that they give, you know. And all of the garbage that they teach. And all of the charlatan uh, ways that they, you know, expose themselves with, you know. And then they say, no weapon formed against me shall prosper. There's a guy in in Fort Worth. I've got to mention his name. His name's Bob Tilton. He's back on TV. A few years ago, he was exposed for being a, you know, for for being a charlatan. And and he got off the, you know, the air for a few years. He's back on worse than ever. But in Fort Worth, when he was down there, uh, you know, at at his... place there was this billboard can you imagine this huge billboard about the size of that wall over there with his picture on it bigger than life scary and then it has that verse of scripture because you can't uh, you know wouldn't you like to say please come and join us we want we love jesus no no weapon formed against me shall prosper he's trying to protect himself what an idiot i'm sorry i'm sorry folks that guy's a charlatan he's worse now than he's ever been isn't that sad You'd think that he was humbled to get his face before God and to change his ways, but no, he's come back doing the same stuff. That's sad. Here's what this all means. The Lord is speaking to his people, his bride, his chosen, his special treasure. He says, no weapon formed against you shall prosper. Every tongue which rises against you, in judgment you shall condemn. So in the millennial kingdom, no nation will be allowed to defeat Israel simply because the Lord has so decreed. Consider that nations rise and fall on the very basis of God's word. In the past, the sovereign God allowed destroyers such as Babylon and Assyria to overcome his people, but this will never happen again. He will even protect his people from criticism. Every tongue that rises against them in judgment, God shall condemn. The key to all of this is that this is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. And so the question as we close tonight is, are you a servant of the Lord? If you're a servant of the Lord, then you can rest on His promise of protection. The Lord also says that this is a promise for those who, whose righteousness is from Him and not from themselves. You see, it's the righteousness of Christ 
that we're to concern ourselves with. It's not our righteousness. And even Paul says in the book of Titus, it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, according to his works, according to what he's done, he saved us. And so, from here on, we will see many times the promises reiterated, the promises of God. And when we see those promises, as believers in Jesus Christ right now, in in this place and time in history, we can look back and we can look forward and realize this, that we are where God has us now, forgiven of our sins, cleansed from all unrighteousness, and looking forward to the coming of Jesus Christ. And because of that, we can sing for joy for what Christ has done for us. The fact of the matter is, now we can see a better picture of Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul tells us that the church is the bride of Christ. The church is the bride of Jesus Christ. And Israel is indeed the wife, the bride of Almighty God. Let's pray.